The preaching of God's Word this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. It's found there in your uh, worship packets in front of you. Um, We're going to turn to that very soon. It's um, a passage that no doubt is familiar to many of you. Um, I don't know how many boys and girls are in the audience this morning, but this is one of the most exciting, one of the most dramatic events recorded on the pages of Scripture. The the great showdown, the great face-off between the Almighty God of heaven and earth and the idol god Baal on Mount Carmel. Before we read this passage, before we look more closely at it, it's important for us to think about what events led up to this important encounter, this face-off between God and Baal. If we look a few chapters back in 1 Kings, we're reminded that Israel has a great problem at this time in her history. She has a great idolatry problem. She has turned to the idol gods, the false gods of the nations that surround her. And one of the most tragic things about Israel's idolatry is that it is primarily the result of the leadership in Israel. We learned that King Ahab had taken for his wife wicked Queen Jezebel. She was not an Israelite, she was a foreigner. And she got her foolish husband Ahab to join in the worship of this idol god called Baal. Now that was bad enough, but it was not just the case that the two of them worshipped Baal together. We're told in uh, 1 Kings 16 that Ahab set up an altar to Baal in the heart of Israel, in Samaria, so that the people of Israel might worship this idol as well. And this is particularly tragic because, you see, it was the king's duty to protect, to promote the pure worship of God in Israel. Ahab should have been urging the church to worship God and to worship Him alone. But instead, he taught the people this. You can worship God. You can worship the God of Israel. But you can also worship God and serve the idol of your choice. You can supplement your devotion to the one true God with idolatry. That's what Ahab was teaching the people of Israel, and we're told uh, before we get to our passage that that decision provoked the Lord to anger, and He sent a devastating drought on the land of Israel for three and a half years. Rain did not fall on the people of Israel. Well, it's after those three and a half years, the Lord comes to Ahab through his servant, the prophet Elijah, and he comes with a rather encouraging message. And the message is this, the Lord is going to bring rain back. Rain's going to fall on the land again, which by now was under a severe famine, and you'd think that the king would be very positive about hearing that news. This would be very good news for the people. The crops could grow again. Uh, The cattle could be fed. Prosperity would return to Israel. You'd think the king would be elated at Elijah's presence. But we read here uh, at verse 17 that when Ahab sees Elijah, the first words to come out of his mouth are these. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, 
because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. We notice something here in, in Ahab's response to Elijah. You troubler, you menace of Israel. Elijah represented the word of God. In fact, his name means, my God is Yahweh. That's God's covenant name that he used to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And Ahab says, you menace, you troubler. Those three and a half years of drought haven't softened Ahab one bit. He has not repented of his sin, and nor have the people. And so he despises Elijah just like he despises the word of God. He has a divided heart. But something we're going to notice this morning is that God demands complete commitment from us as his covenant people. Divided hearts are not enough. So the big showdown is at hand. It's time for Yahweh and Baal to come face to face, as it were, before the people of Israel. I pick up reading here at verse 20, and we'll read to uh, verse 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, and there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. And there we are in the reading of God's Word this morning. We read here that Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel for a moment so that we can capture this event, at least in our mind's eyes. Imagine with me the anticipation of this event from the perspective of the people of Israel. No rain had fallen on the land for some three and a half years. Food was terribly scarce. The people were hungering. They were thirsting for relief. Their situation at the time makes quarantine seem like a walk in the park. And now it seems that after this terrible trial, hope is revived. You can picture the crowds of the people of Israel moving up the mountain. They're jostling each other. They're pushing one another forward. Uh, they want to see what's happening there on the mountain. Was perhaps an end to their suffering in sight? Would the prophets of Baal work a miracle and bring rain upon their parched land? And then a hush falls over the crowd as public enemy number one, that prophet Elijah, comes into view. What is that troubler? What is that menace of Israel doing here? Isn't he the one who caused this disastrous drought in the first place? You can picture the indignant, angry stares and perhaps jeers that Elijah must have faced as he approached the crowd of idolatrous Israelites that day. But Elijah, God's servant, the mouthpiece of God, stands firm. He stands undaunted before the people, and God speaks plainly. He speaks clearly to His church through Elijah. He lays out the facts for His people once and for all, and God sets before His people a rather disturbing proposal. He says, how long will you go limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. 
The Hebrew here literally says, when will you stop limping around on two crutches? Because that's what the Israelites were doing. They were tottering back and forth, limping between God and Baal. They weren't walking rightly. You might imagine a young schoolboy on crutches, and he's being teased by two bullies on the playground. They've stolen uh, one of his uh, crutches, and they're tossing it back and forth in a cruel manner over the boy's head, and he's uncertain which way to turn. He's grasping wildly, aimlessly at that crutch as it sails back and forth over his head. It's a pitiful scene. And God uses that kind of illustration to describe the serious lack of commitment in His church at the time. Yes, sometimes Israel tottered over to the side of God. They hadn't forgotten Him completely, after all. But then they would stumble drunkenly over to the side of false gods. They weren't fully devoted either to God or to Baal. They wanted the benefits of both, to be sure but they were unwilling to be committed to either one. They were inconsistent. They were very fickle. But God comes to them through Elijah, and He demands a definite decision. He wants willing people. He deserves willing people with willing hearts that are fully devoted to Him. Only an undivided, uncompromising heart and life will please Him. And so he makes this disturbing proposal, if the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people cannot have it both ways. They must choose one from the other. And but what we're told, the people could not answer Elijah even a word. They were dumbfounded. They were silent at this disturbing proposal. Now, dear saints of God, we might be tempted to scoff at Israel's dilemma here. We might say, if the Lord is God, follow Him. Well, of course He is God. Isn't that obvious? Why are you having such a hard time making your decision, you foolish Israelites? Why all the hesitation? And we, we read an account like this, and we sometimes are quick to dismiss it or, or to think that it's irrelevant for us because, of course, we would never be tempted to worship a Baal. We would never be tempted to have a carved image in our homes. But to properly understand Baal worship, we need to know something about it. The worship of Baal was a very ancient practice. It was, it was observed by all of the nations that surrounded Israel in that day. It was very popular. And who doesn't want to be on the side of what is popular? As far as idols go, Baal had a lot going for him. Baal was considered to be the god of the storm, the god of fertility. And so if you wanted a, a fruitful crop, especially in time of drought, you went to Baal. If you wanted a healthy, fertile marriage, you went to Baal. The gifts that Baal supposedly provided would have meant a lot to an Israelite farmer in those days, if he could deliver. But Baalism also appealed to the people's sensuality. If your marriage wasn't satisfying, if uh, your wife had become somewhat unappealing, there was an ample supply of so-called holy prostitutes waiting at the Baal shrines to fix that problem too. 
And so the people thought they had something good going for them in joining in some of the, the Baal practices. But regardless of what the people believed that Baal could do for them, the Lord's proposition stands. Who is God? Whom will you serve? If Yahweh is God, then follow Him. See, the Lord is teaching His people, He's teaching us something very important here. That our belief in who God is leads to complete commitment to Him. Or to put it another way, our theology necessarily leads to discipleship. There's a lot involved here. Because God is not an idea that we can play with. God is not someone we can fashion after our own image. God is not someone we can call to submit to our own sinful desires. No, God is a king to whom we must submit utterly and completely. And so we need to understand that there are consequences to the, the decisions, the commitments we make. When, when, when Elijah came to Israel to make this disturbing proposal, they stood silent, dumbfounded in response because they were shocked by what a great commitment they were called to make. They feared the disturbing results if they made a wrong choice between Baal and God. That God's disturbing proposal is no less real for us today, brothers and sisters. The Lord says to you and me today, if I am God, follow me, submit to me alone. The God of the Bible, the God who is, is much like the great lion, Aslan, in, in C.S. Lewis's great story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're told there God is good but he's not tame. He's not safe. He will, he must invade our lives, every part of them. He must expose the idols of our heart. He must expose anything that competes for our love for him. This God is the God who demands that he is our all in all. And so we must toss aside this Foolish notion that we can have Jesus as our Savior, that we can look to Him for the salvation of our bodies and our souls without having Him as our Lord, as the master of our will, as the master of our lives. That option simply doesn't exist. So I ask you this morning, are there any bales that compete for your love to God? What are the commitments that get in the way of loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, your whole being? Do false religions exist among us? I believe God's Word is clear in saying that they do. Calvin is well known for saying that our hearts are idle factories. We are regularly crafting things after our own image, to place on the pedestal right there alongside God and His worship. Things that we love and trust so much, they compete for our love for God. There are different kinds of people in the sanctuary this morning. Some of you have grown up under the protection of a Christian home all of your life. 
But by now, as young adults or uh, full adults, you, you've tasted some of the pleasures, some of the attractions of this world. You've, you've encountered the wealth in our society. You've enjoyed some of its comforts and its ease. You've um, bought some of its glittering gadgets and toys. You've certainly encountered its invitation to indulge in lust and sinful practices of the flesh that attract you. You know the temptation of either going along with these worldly practices or being made fun of. And you may retain a form of godliness, going through the motions, perhaps, offering your prayer before the Lord, retaining the look of a Christian, someone who appears godly, but perhaps in your heart, your allegiances are divided. And you will not cling to God alone. You will not abandon everything that would draw you away from Him. Your heart is divided this morning. Some of you sitting here this morning perhaps did not grow up in a covenant home. In fact, you know very well the the sinful, worldly, destructive ways of our society, but the Lord has graciously brought you into His kingdom. You desire to live the life of the new man in Jesus Christ. You're dissatisfied with that former life, but yet you're still surrounded by ungodly people. Perhaps your family members, your friends, your co-workers are still godless. They don't understand what it is to know the salvation of God, and you're afraid that if you change your life too much, that you will be jeered and belittled by those around you, by those family members and friends, and so you still cling to some aspects of your old life. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's excessive drinking. Maybe it's filthy entertainment. Maybe it's a temptation to dishonor the Lord's day. Whatever it may be, you make small compromises that allow you from time to time to cover up your most deeply held convictions. Like the Israelites, you limp aimlessly between two opinions, God or Baal. You limp between God's claim, His total claim upon your life, and the opinion of your worldly relatives. You're afraid to be all out for Christ, no matter what your enemies might say or do. Perhaps that is you this morning. You see, brothers and sisters in the Lord, the idols of our day and our age are rarely, if ever, made of stone or wood or clay, but they are very real. They are very destructive idols nonetheless. They are things like sexual lust, greed for money, being recognized for having money and influence and power. Human relationships can be our bale, our idol. We can make our children and our family life our obsession. We're tempted every day to to trust in these things rather than God, or perhaps it isn't that simple after all. Perhaps we do trust God, but incompletely. We search for personal security and health and wealth and comfort because we think that these things will fill up what is lacking in God. And we say to the Lord, oh, I love these things so much. They mean so much to me. Can't I serve them and you? And God's answer is an unequivocal no. But what about my wonderful job? 
What about the security that that gives me? What about my fancy new boat, those, those extravagant family vacations that I, I just long for and love so much? Can't I serve them? Can't I love them and you? And God says, no, not even a little bit. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal is God, if money, influence, sex, material possessions, relationships, you name it, if that's God, then you must follow it. But if you bow before these things, then you must live for them too. But if you choose this day to worship the Lord, the covenant God of His church, then worship nothing and no one else besides Him. You see, God demands complete commitment from us, an unwavering, undivided heart from His people. That's the disturbing proposal with which Elijah begins his message. But what happens after that highlights God's gracious provision for us in Jesus Christ. To summarize what happens here in this great encounter between God and Baal, we see that the, the Israelites, again, are, are dumbfounded. They have a hand over their mouth. They, they don't know how to respond to Elijah's disturbing proposal. They're stunned by his direct challenge. And it's in their silence, in their hesitation, that God begins to show them not only the foolishness of their idolatry, but also the perfection of, of His provision. We read here that the, the prophets of Baal prepare their sacrifice. Uh, their altar is ready, and now they begin to dance wildly. They begin to limp around the altar, crying out to their idol god, Baal, answer us, send down the fire to prove that you are uh, the one true God. But what happens? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. The altar remains cold. It remains smokeless. The bull lays there on the altar untouched, unsinged. And Elijah begins to have a little bit of fun uh, uh, with these, these foolish prophets. He begins to um, expose the foolishness of their idolatrous hoopla. He can't resist adding a little bit of sarcasm. Well, cry louder. Perhaps he's hard of hearing. Uh, maybe he's um, relieving himself in the bathroom. He'll be back in just a bit. Uh, maybe his waiting room is full. Just be patient. But the prophets of Baal persist in their foolishness. They, they dance more fiercely. They cry more loudly. They start cutting themselves with knives until their, their blood gushes out all over the place. What a dirty, nonsensical, foolish mess idolatry is. If Baal is God, serve him. And that's exactly what they did. But we read, no one answered. No one paid attention. The vanity, the absurdity of idolatry was in full view for the entire church to see. Well, finally, after the prophets of Baal have had their chance, Elijah prepares the Lord's altar. But you notice that he does something very unusual, very strange with that altar. Elijah's already at a disadvantage, you might say. There's only one of him. There are 450 prophets of Baal. He's vastly outnumbered. 
Not only that, but the mountain on which the sacrifices were being offered uh, was a common place for Baal worship. We might say that Elijah wasn't on home turf there on that mountain, at least not from the people's perspective. He didn't have home field advantage. And if that's not bad enough, he orders his servants to drench the altar of the Lord, to drench the sacrifice of the Lord in no less than 12 jars of water. And we, we read that it, it soaked the altar, it soaked the sacrifice, it even pooled in the trench around the altar. People watching were, were uh, foolish idolaters, but they were not stupid. They knew that adding water to a sacrifice would not help it burn. And so a truly supernatural event would have to occur to make it go up in smoke. God would have to intervene for this thing to burn. And that was the point. Every circumstance seemed to be in Baal's favor on Mount Carmel that day, but that was necessary so that Israel would witness firsthand the supreme power and sovereignty of their covenant God. That was necessary so that they would see firsthand the utter foolishness of their idolatry. God wants His church to see the utter madness of serving false gods. But He also wants His people to know that He is a gracious God, that He provides reconciliation, He provides protection, He provides preservation and salvation for His people who repent and turn to Him in faith. That's another important lesson that God wanted His people to learn. And so Elijah cries out in prayer to the one true God of His church, and he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you. And we read here the powerful response of the one true God. The fire of the Lord fell with fury upon the sacrifice. The fire of God consumed everything from the burnt offerings to the stones and the dust around the altar. Can you imagine such a great heat, such a great fire? You notice that the Israelites are no longer silent. They fall with fear and trembling to the dust, proclaiming, The Lord is God. He is God. What a tremendous moment in the redemptive history of the church. Because here we see God's justice displayed. Here God shows that He is a consuming fire that He must and will be worshipped as the one true God, as God alone. And as the holy God, we see that He must deal with the sin of His people, and He must deal with it with fiery judgment. But we also see God's grace here in a glorious way, because the fire of judgment, the fire of God, the all-consuming holiness of God does not descend upon the people. The fire does not descend upon the people to consume and destroy them for their disobedience and their idolatry, for their divided hearts. No, God provides an escape for His people. Like He had done so many years ago when the angel of death passed by those houses that had the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost. God provides an escape. He provides a sacrifice. 
to stand in for the rebellious and idolatrous people. His wrath falls on the sacrifice. It destroys, it consumes it, but God's church standing there close by is spared, is protected. You see, brothers and sisters, in the Lord, the, it's the redeeming sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that is foreshadowed in the events that took place on that mountain that day. Anticipated there was Jesus' death on Mount Calvary as the Lamb of God who substituted Himself in the place of guilty, idolatrous sinners. There, much like Elijah, Christ faced the cruel jeers, the hatred, the scorn of sinners. There on the cruel cross, Jesus Christ suffered the severe agonies of hell, the hot fire of God's wrath, to spare us from God's wrath, to bring us into renewed and perfect fellowship with Him. The fire of the Lord fell on Jesus on that mountain. His cries went unanswered so that you and I might be accepted, so that our cries will always be heard by God. And so you see, dear saints, from the fires of judgment come a blessed invitation to turn back to God and to serve Him only. And that invitation is ours this morning. Christ demands that we must unsparingly judge whatever is evil in our lives and, and shelter in our hearts no rivals to the Lord our God. We must put to death daily the idolatry that clings to us and cling only to the one true God. The God who stood up that day, the real God who stood up that day on Mount Carmel is the real God who has also come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And He calls you and me to serve Him. You'll find Him to be the same God. He's a God who uses different servants to proclaim His will. He's a God who makes some disturbing demands. He's a God who liberates us from our pagan, idolatrous thinking, who laces His severity with grace, who exposes our low level of holiness. But with the consuming fire of God's Holiness also came this gift of reconciliation, preservation, protection, and strength to set apart Christ as Lord and Him alone. May He strengthen us to live as His faithful servants with undivided, committed hearts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that on that mountain that day at Calvary, your righteous judgment fell upon our Lord Jesus Christ, who came much like Elijah, as one who followed your word perfectly, who came to do your will, who came to speak only the truth about the one true God, the living God of heaven and earth. We thank you that on that mountain, just as on Mount Carmel, we were spared. Though we are not worthy to be spared, though we are worthy of judgment and destruction, worthy to be consumed because of our great sin, because of our divided hearts, because of our idle factories. 
yet you spared us. You covered us with the blood of Jesus Christ. Perfect sacrifice for sin which stood in our place to rescue us from guilt, to rescue us from death and destruction, and to make us children of God. Lord, Lord, you are turning our hearts back to you. We pray that you would continue to do that by your Holy Spirit so that we can live before you with no rival getting in between. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, sing now to the Lord once again, turning to number 114 in your packet there. Praise waits for thee in Zion. We'll sing stanzas 1, 2, and 3 of number 114. Before we receive God's parting blessing, just want to remind you of our standard procedure, at least for now, 
Uh, we're going to uh, sing the doxology, and then Dorothy will uh, play some music. If you would just sit down, the ushers will come, usher you out to the side doors one row at a time. Uh, during that time, you can also put your offerings uh, in the baskets to the side of the sanctuary. Saints of God, receive now God's gracious uh, parting blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.